Welcome to Sermons from San Diego, a podcast of preaching at Mission Hills United Church of Christ. I'm the Reverend Dr. David Barr, but please just call me David. I'd like to invite you along to listen as we try to follow the teachings of Jesus and the wisdom of Scripture to build a world that is open, inclusive, just, and compassionate. And now for this week's sermon. Last week, we quickly raced through the ten disasters caused by Pharaoh's refusal to simply let the enslaved Israelites leave for a three-day festival in the desert to worship God. Often called the Ten Plagues, this first one was really just an effort to impress Pharaoh by turning a shepherd's rod into a snake. But failing to impress Pharaoh, the stakes were quickly raised when the Nile River turned to blood and there was no water to drink wasn't even fit to make a good Bloody Mary. And then thousands of frogs emerged from the Nile and began jumping everywhere and getting into everything. Kind of cute, but kind of gross. And then all the lice-covered people itching and animals scratching themselves. And then flailing arms swatting away swarms of insects. Then a fatal disease affecting Egyptian livestock. And then everyone covered in painful blisters and boils. But one attempt after another, and nothing would budge Pharaoh. This Pharaoh had come to power, claiming not to know Joseph. Egyptians forgot why this group of immigrants, the descendants of Joseph, were living in their land. The Joseph, who had skillfully saved the entire nation of Egypt from starvation, But they forgot, and so Pharaoh was able to scapegoat the Israelites and eventually enslaved all of them. After years of suffering, God heard their cries and personally got involved by sending Moses and Aaron to get them released. But by approaching Pharaoh, they actually made things worse. Pharaoh forced the people to work harder by making the same number of bricks, but without providing them any straw to make them. The people rightfully complained, and Moses complained that God is doing nothing to help. Then seven plagues in an odd narrative shift. Pharaoh had gone back and forth between relenting, saying, just go already, and changing his mind. But after the seventh disaster, God made Pharaoh stubborn. And now it's not just a story about an obnoxiously rich and powerful man refusing to grant the people a break but something more complicated of which I have yet to find a satisfying explanation that doesn't make God look like a jerk, prolonging their suffering and causing more. The eighth disaster was the greatest hailstorm that anyone had ever seen, and then a plague of locusts. Of course, to me, devastating hailstorms and plagues of locusts just sound like North Dakota in summertime along with constantly swatting away mosquitoes the size of birds. And after that, three days of darkness covered Egypt, which just sounds like winter in North Dakota. But then, and nothing funny about it, the worst of all, death came to the oldest child and animal in every family, terrible agony in every household in Egypt, except for Israelite houses marked with blood from a lamb. For those families, God would pass over. Finally, it was all too much. Pharaoh relented and the people could go. 
and while they took off so fast the yeast hadn't yet raised the bread dough. They walked for several days and came to the edge of the reed sea. They made camp along the seashore where a woman was selling seashells. They deserved a nice waterside retreat, except it also meant they were trapped. And soon enough, Pharaoh changed his mind and sent all the military might at his disposal to force his slaves back to Egypt. The people were furious at Moses and complained bitterly that they could have just died in Egypt without all this trouble. You should have left us alone. But as you heard last week, Moses raised his hand and God blew a strong wind, which dried up the sea for the Israelites to walk through, and once they were safely across, the wind turned and created havoc for the chariots and Egyptian soldiers. All perished in the sea. God saved the people. Once they were all on the other side, Miriam picked up a tambourine and led them in singing and dancing all day and all night. Horse and rider into the sea, God has saved us from the enemy. And that's where we stopped last week. So here we are the next morning. After a good night's sleep, they traveled forward. God only knows where they were going. I mean, only God knew where they were going. But after three days in the wilderness, they had not yet found water. <clears throat> Their supplies had run out, and so men, women, and children alike sat down on the ground and wailed. Why didn't God just let us die in the comfort of Egypt? Now, if brick-making seven days a week in the hot Egyptian sun was comfort, they really were miserable. But with no other choice, they kept moving until they finally came across a spring in Mara. Water! Word passed back to Miriam to dig out her tambourines. People stood around and with great anticipation watched the first person tasted, taste what they expected would be the most wonderful, fresh, cool water the people had been dreaming of for days. But before Miriam could start dancing, the person spit the water out. It was bitter, which shouldn't have surprised them because the word Mara means bitter. So no surprise that the water in a place called bitter is bitter. But not to fear, God pointed Moses to a tree. Moses threw its branches into the water and it became sweet. They waited around until everyone had filled up their water jugs and then they began traveling until they came <clears throat> to Elam. Elam is a beautiful desert paradise could be described on travel travelocity as 70 palm trees and 12 springs of water. It was a literal palm springs in the desert, minus all the mid-century modern architecture. They enjoyed six weeks of rest and relaxation, and when they resumed their travels, I can only imagine that more than a few people complained about having to leave. And, yep, as soon as they started moving, why didn't God let us die in comfort in Egypt? You let us out here to starve to death. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt free of charge. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Back in Egypt, we had pots of meat cooking. They were hungry. And once again, the whole company of Israel complained bitterly against Moses and Aaron. Temple Beth Shalom set up a voicemail system for dealing with this kind of thing. If you would like our service schedule, press 1. 
For membership information, press 2. To complain to the rabbi, press 3. To complain about the rabbi, press 4, 5, or 6. Moses, in turn, complained to God, who promised to rain down bread from the skies. Moses and Aaron informed the people, God has heard your complaints. And by the way, they added, just so you know, when you complain, it doesn't bother us. Your complaints are against God, and do you really want to complain against a God who can send frogs, lice, boils, hail, and more on command? I think we call that being passive-aggressive, obviously a tactic for human interaction as old as time itself. Moses assured them that God had heard their complaints and promised to send bread every morning, adding, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. In the morning that, quote, bread was a layer of dew all around the camp, described as thin flakes, as thin as frost on the ground. This is, um, food? I am a picky eater, so I understand when the people nervously asked, what is this? And Moses said, it's the bread God has given you to eat. Someone said, give it to Mikey, see if he likes it. The Bible says it was like white coriander seed. I had to look that up and discovered that it's like cilantro, which doesn't help. So reportedly, coriander seeds taste, quote, earthy, and the leaves are, quote, pungent and citrus-like, though I read on Wikipedia that some people think it tastes like dish soap. The Bible, however, says it tasted like honey wafers. Nice. And the people called it manna, manna from heaven. And here's how it worked. It came every morning. People were to gather up about two quarts before the sun burned it away. They could take as much as they needed for that day. Of course, that wasn't enough for some people, but the, quote, too much they took turned rotten and became infested with worms. On the other hand, those who didn't take enough found they had just enough. On Fridays, they were to gather enough for two days, and it wouldn't spoil. And that way they could rest on the Sabbath. They ate these delicious honey wafers every day for 40 years. But not just this manna. Every day at supper time, a flock of birds, perfect for roasting, flew down and covered the camp. And so God provided them with honey nut Cheerios every morning and quail every night, which isn't bad, although I'd probably tire of it before too long. And sure enough, it wasn't too long before the people complained about something else. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us, our children, our livestock, with thirst? Moses turned around and angrily complained. What should I do with these people? Moses hadn't learned the skill of customer service. When the people stood at the edge of the sea and complained, weren't there enough graves in Egypt for us to die here? <clears throat> Moses should have said, I'm sorry, this has been such an upsetting experience for you. And when they crossed the sea and complained about dying of thirst, Moses should have said, tell me more about what this has been like for you. And when they complained about being hungry, reminiscing about, quote, free cucumbers and leeks and onions back in Egypt, 
Well, Moses should have said, I hear that you're hungry. I'm committed to making this better for you. And then turn to God, help. Of all the things people do in the Bible, this is one of the most universal to complain. It's like we can't help ourselves. Maybe we can look at all that time in the wilderness as needing 40 years of gratitude training. Did you notice that in all these stories, never once does someone say, thank you. Thank you for the retreat in Palm Springs. Thank you for turning bitter water sweet. Thank you for the honey flakes delivered right to my door. Thank you for quail from Uber Eats. Maybe a gift certificate for a massage to thank Moses and Aaron for the hell they were being put through. But to their defense, the Israelites had been enslaved for years. I mean, scholars debate somewhere between 86 and 430 years. But regardless of length, they were shaped by a system that took advantage of them <clears throat> and debased their humanity. Walter Brueggemann described their needing 40 years of wilderness for freedom training, learning not to belong to anyone else but only God. And so I don't mean to equate our experiences, but we too are shaped by dehumanizing systems like commercialism and capitalism. We need to ask who has a vested interest in trying to convince us that what we have is not enough. In fact, more is still not enough. And why do people describe time as too important to waste? As though sitting by the ocean has no purpose. Who says that a person doing is more important than a person being? And why is it? By the virtue of the size of a paycheck, some people are more important than others. In fact, some people are expendable. That diminishes all of us. We hear a barrage of such messages six days a week. And so to disrupt them, we gather here to try to break through this dehumanization for ourselves and others trapped by such systems. Once a week, we gather to worship the one who is greater than all that, to say thank you, to express gratitude. But that's not enough. This is something we actually need to do more of, a regular practice of gratitude in between Sundays. And so I'll start with myself. David, when it takes you an extra 60 seconds to get past St. Vincent's school on your way to work, Instead of complaining, express gratitude for all the teachers who serve our community, thankfully preparing a new generation of educated citizens. I could go on and on about examples like this, but you get the idea. You have your own. It may be old-fashioned, but we can stop to express gratitude before a meal or before going to bed, while brushing your teeth, while riding the elevator or walking the dog. You may think these are too small, but it doesn't matter what or how long, just think of anything that disrupts thoughts of scarcity. A prompt when we feel ourselves starting to complain and say, I'm grateful. It's vitally important because when you are grateful, you are not fearful. And when you are not fearful, you are not violent. And when you are not violent, you realize you have enough. 
And when you stop feeling like you never have enough, you're willing to share. And when you share, you know you have enough, which in turn makes us grateful. Which in turns mean, turn means we have no need to be fearful, which in turn makes us grateful. Because we have enough. Every day. Do you?